0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. <clears throat> Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in John chapter 13. John chapter 13, continuing where we left off last week with episode 19, foot washing. Following along in our Harmony of the Gospels, we have reached episode 19. In Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem, episode 19, foot washing. Most of these, uh, we got about six or seven of these events now that all take place in the upper room on the night in which our Savior is betrayed. Uh, episode 8, 17 and 18, we dealt with, with the preparations for the Passover, the Passover eaten and the disciples' jealousy rebuked. Now we move on to foot washing. Uh, following this, we're going to see the uh, exposure of the traitor, Judas will be exposed and expelled, followed by the communion service as Christ gives communion to the apostles, uh, followed by uh, their departure from the upper room. They'll go out, they'll sing a hymn and go out to the Garden of Gethsemane where he will be arrested. So this is where we are uh, on this, uh, the most famous Thursday night in the history of uh, Thursday nights. How about that? John chapter 13. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit and that we are equipped to handle the truth of God's word, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and for the blessing we have to assemble together this morning. Father, we just rejoice in uh, your truth, your plan, your grace in our lives. Father, how you unfold us how uh, everything, Father, that you have designed is for our blessing and for the glory of your Son. We thank you and we praise you that this morning you've designed and provided the uh, study of uh, John chapter 13. We ask for your hand of blessing upon it as we study to show ourselves approved. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. John chapter 13. Let's look at it before the feast of the Passover Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. And that verse right there we spent quite a bit of time with last week, simply pointing out <coughs> that it is a very long, run-on sentence. Then you have a string of participles throughout this sentence. Uh, before the feast of the Passover, you got a participle. And Jesus, knowing, you got a participle. Uh, that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own. You got another participle, having loved his own who are in the world. You don't actually get to the verb <coughs> until right there at the very end. He loved them to the end. And so you could you could strip everything else out of that verse and just have the subject Jesus, how Jesus loved, and that's what the verse is saying. But the verse is <coughs> is being Um, drawn out purposely to communicate a whole lot of things. And what we're actually finding here is an introduction similar to what we have in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God, right? Uh, You have this long introduction that goes through multiple verses that introduces the book of the Gospel of John. It's like the book is getting a (laughs) do-over. The book of the Gospel of John is starting over here with a very lengthy introduction. In fact, it's extraordinary. What I call it is a grammatically remarkable introduction. John 13, verses 1 through 4, forms a grammatically remarkable introduction to this portion of the Gospel of John. And uh, verses 2 through 4 will do the same thing that verse 1 did. You're going to have a lot of participles. You're going to have a lot of extraneous things added in there before you get to the main point. During supper... The devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. You see how all of that is just added in, added in, added in, and we haven't even gotten to the main verb, the main point of what's happening here. You don't get that until verse 4. Jesus got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Okay, so... um, it's just a remarkable development in these in these uh, verses. And, and so last week we spent the time trying to, you know, outline. We didn't do formal sentence out diagramming or outlining, but trying to illustrate what's really happening here. Hopefully <coughs> you got the gist of that. And uh, it, it truly is a, a, a neat restart, a reboot, as it were, to the gospel of John. You can think of the first 12 chapters as the signs. That, that Jesus performed. Jesus performed seven signs in this gospel, and these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and so forth. You can think of chapters one through twelve as the signs, and you can the book of signs, and you can think of chapters thirteen through twenty-one as the book of glory, and oftentimes uh, that's the title that it will receive uh, if you read different uh, commentaries or theological works and so forth. All right, understand that he was in the world. The world was made through him and the world did not know him. That's how the book opened in John chapter 1 and verse 10. Remember that? He was in the world. The world was made through him and the world did not know him. Here we have a parallel. In chapter 13, we're told, his hour had come that he would depart out of the world. So we have the contrast between chapter 1 and chapter 13 now. In chapter 1, he's coming into the world. In chapter 13, he's ready to depart out of the world. And so we have these wonderful introductory texts. The, the, um, the beautiful passage in chapter 1 as he comes into the world. And now this beautiful passage in chapter 13 as he's departing out of this world. We also have the contrast with his own. He came to his own. Remember his own. That was a feature in chapter 1. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. Remember that? John chapter 1. Then it goes on to say, but as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Well, in chapter one, as he came into the world, his own was a point of emphasis. Likewise, in chapter thirteen, when he's departing out of this world, his own is a point of emphasis. It says, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. And so, it's uh, it's a wonderful. Uh, parallel And it's a wonderful contrast when you look at the, the grammar from chapter one and the grammar from chapter 13, when you look at the content from chapter one and the content from chapter 13, it really uh, is, as I put it in the point, grammatically remarkable introduction to this portion of the gospel of John. <clears throat> we also looked at the participles, point E then in the outline. The participles of verses 2 and 3 demonstrate that all the attendant circumstances are in place. All of the attendant circumstances are in place. Having been put in place over the days, weeks, years, and even the millennia leading up to this upper room discourse. The devil had his plan. The father had his plan. See? When you see it in verse 2, what are we looking at? The devil. During supper, the devil... Having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. So the devil has things already in place. He already made these arrangements ahead of time. We saw it actually. It was the night before. It was Wednesday night that uh, that he had moved the heart of Judas to go to the high priest and and arrange for the the betrayal. But then in verse 3 we find out that the father also has been working. (laughs) Right? And hallelujah for this. God the Father has been working in his plan. Didn't just happen the night before. His plan has been in the work since the foundation of the world. And when you see verse 3, the Father's plan, knowing that the Father, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. So there's the Father's preparations bringing him here to this very night bringing him here to this night where he has to, he faces his final volitional test face-to-face with Judas and says, what you do, do quickly. And sends Judas out of the room. And then he goes to the garden and he prays. And he has more volitional tests. Is Jesus going to go through with obeying the Father? Is he going to die on the cross? He has to volitionally do that. And then the traitor comes back and kisses him. He calls him friend. All right. All of these volitional battles are going to be very important. So we see the attendant circumstances. The participles of verses 2 and 3 demonstrate that all the attendant circumstances are in place. Having been put in place over the days, weeks, years, millennia, leading up to this upper room on this particular Passover Eve, the devil crafted a plan and drafted an instrument. God the Father crafted a plan and called an instrument for volitional obedience. Jesus Christ said, "Lo, I have come to do Thy will. A body Thou hast prepared for Me." In the scroll of the book, it is written, "I come to do Your will," and the fulfillment of Psalm 40, quoted in Hebrews 10. So many, uh, so many blessings related to this. Anyway, I'm going a little bit quickly. If you want more on this, I recommend uh, last week's MP3 file, and you have the opportunity to uh, to review that. Finally, then the actions of the main verbs, and here in verse four, got up laid aside and girded himself. Jesus' simple actions after dinner vividly painted the next day's anticipated activity. Understand what He's doing here with foot washing. He is teaching His disciples what tomorrow is going to do. Teaching His disciples that tomorrow He's going to accomplish the work of cleansing them. Tomorrow He's going to accomplish the work of cleansing the whole world. Taking away the sin of the world. It's a cleansing work. So he arose. He laid aside his garment. And then when he's done, he's going to take it up again. It's kind of interesting. Same thing that he does on the cross. He lays down his life. And then he takes it up again. And he says, I have authority to do this from my Father. No one takes this from me. But I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. And uh, here he is arising, laying aside his garment, girding himself, girding himself. And I think it's neat that this night had such an impact uh, in Peter and in John especially. Probably all the disciples, but Peter and John would go on to write things in the New Testament. And this whole aspect of laying down his life, uh, boy, John just writes about this again and again. Writes about it here in his Gospel. Writes about it in chapter 13. Writes about it in chapter 15. Writes about it in First John chapter 3. That this is the greatest love that one lays down his life. And that we're to imitate Christ and lay down, be willing to lay down our lives. Man, that had an impact in in John. The aspect of girding impacted Peter, and uh, several aspects uh, related to this. We can hit these real quickly. John twenty one seven. This term that gets used related to Peter when the Lord. Uh, It says, uh, oh, this is the event where they're out fishing. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. In other words, he girded himself, put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. And he threw himself into the sea and uh, went to get instruction from the Lord there. Down to verse 18. The Lord says to Peter, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself. There's that word again. And walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, someone, uh, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. So there's the word used twice in that verse. And it's interesting how every time we come to this word gird, this dia zonumi or anazonumi or katazonumi, there's a lot of zonumi compounds. When we come to this word, we find it's attached to Peter in so many places. Likewise in Acts 12.8, Peter's in jail and the angel comes to him and uh, the angel says, gird yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he busts him out of jail. <laughs> right? So it's, it's remarkable. We, all throughout the New Testament, we have this, uh, these, this concept of gird yourself. And, and Peter's in the picture every time we come across it. And so then First 1 Peter 1.13, gird your minds for action. Do you think this word had an impact in Peter's life? I think it did. Therefore, gird your minds for action or prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think it's neat the way Peter embraced the whole doctrine of girding based on uh, these events that had happened previously. That he would use a word like that in his own epistle related to uh, keeping focus during difficult times. Because on the night we're studying today, Jesus did and Peter didn't, right? Jesus girded his mind for action. He went into the Garden of Gethsemane and he surrendered his will to the Father and said, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus did this very thing. He fixed his hope on that which was set before him. That's why he was able to despise the the shame and endure the cross, to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Peter didn't. (laughs) Peter was so boastful. He said, oh Lord, I'll die with you. And then he leaves that room and he goes out and, you know, Before the rooster crows three times, he's denying the Lord. So he's hardly uh, has he girded his mind for action. All right, let's move on today. Let's take a look at uh, Judas Iscariot. We'll do some things with Judas. And um, I'll read uh, an article from the Logos Bible software here in just a moment. (coughs) But the interesting phraseology in John 13 in verse 2. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of... And and I don't know what your English text reads or your Bible reads there, but it says, Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. Okay? And it's an interesting phrase. Judas, Simonas, Iscariotu. Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And it's not unique here. It'll be repeated down in verse 26. The same phraseology is repeated in verse 26. It's uh, also phrased identically the same way in John 6:71. In John 6:71, the exact same phraseology. The um, and some people don't realize how uh, significant this is. So he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And so there's that phraseology again. Now, where we get lost is because in our modern way of thinking, uh, we just think that, well, Iscariot was his last name. Okay? (laughs) And we think, you know, like my last name is Bolander, right? And uh, and why is that my last name? Well, because my dad's last name was Bolander. So, duh. Okay? Well, don't be so quick with your duh. Okay? Because the way we do last names now is not... The way it's always been. okay, and uh, and and, in fact, they're like um, typically uh, what does the Lord call Simon? He calls him Simon, son of John. You know, it's not like does that mean he was Simon Johnson? Was that his name? Uh, You understand they didn't have last names. They didn't have as we do. okay, today. Um, the, 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 structure was entirely different and the Jewish naming convention was different than the, 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 Roman naming convention. And we could do a whole study on that if you like, it's a fascinating topic, but it doesn't relate to what we're doing today. So I'll let that go. The, uh, the whole thing about the names here is, and what is an Iscariot? Okay. So if, uh, one view is Iscariot is a term for an assassin, in which case uh, Judas is an assa- or Judas's father Simon was the assassin and Judas is the son of an assassin and uh, which is remarkable because as the son of an assassin he uh, himself will become an assassin as it were by betraying Christ and having uh, being responsible for the death of our savior now if that was the only term for him then we we'd be debating that uh, but there are plenty of other places of course where Judas himself is called the Iscariot. Judas Ha Iscariotes from Matthew 10.4, just to cite one out of many examples. Matthew 10.4. In Matthew 10, we have our catalog of the 12 apostles, what I call the dodeca Postologue, the catalog of the 12 apostles. And uh, it happens, we have one in Matthew, we have one in Luke, we have one in John, we have one in Acts, right? The, or no, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts are the four places where we have listings of the twelve apostles. And they're always, Peter always comes first, Judas always comes last. And uh, the order within the twelve is mixed up, scrambled somewhat. Um, but the first four are always Peter, Andrew, James, and John, always, with Peter first. Andrew, James, and John are sometimes different order. And then the middle three uh, always start with Philip, okay? Philip, Thomas, Matthew, and James. And sometimes those names are mixed up as well, except Philip will always be the first name of that group of four. And then the last group of four, the final third of the twelve. Um, uh, let's see, am I skipping some names here? Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew. There we go. And then James, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas. Okay. Misread the middle group, but that's all right. James, Thaddeus, uh, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. And that group of four is always the same, um, with James always being listed first and with Judas always being listed last. And every time Judas is listed in a catalog of the 12 apostles, um, reference will be made to the fact that he is the traitor, that he is the betrayer. And we see that here. Uh, Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, or the Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Paradidymi, and we'll have some study on that coming up. The one who betrayed him. So, um, here we have him listed as Judas the Iscariot, just like we have Simon the Zealot. So, uh, his father was the Iscariot. Now, he's the Iscariot. Say, so, okay, I get that. What's the Iscariot? What is the Iscariot? We'll answer that here next. He is called the traitor, the betrayer, the deliverer, paradidomi. Every single time he shows up in the uh, listings of the apostles, Matthew 10, Mark 3, and Luke 6, if you want to compare them. It's a fun exercise, too. You can spend an afternoon just writing names down, okay, and uh, make a a Matthew column, then a Mark column, then a Luke column, and compare them, okay, and you start to uh, wonder, well, does Bartholomew have more than one name? Okay. And what about Lebius and some of these? And you find out that yes, a lot of them have two names and one has three names. And so we're okay with that. Um, Paradidomy is the term to betray, to hand over, to deliver. Didomy is to give, para, to give over, to give across, to give uh, you know, alongside, as it were. And um, pretty much in a negative sense, we, we say betray. But in a positive sense, we can say, deliver. Like uh, Paul said, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered unto you. And the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was delivered. Okay, uh, same word. Uh, the Father delivered the Son over. The Son delivered himself up, we're told. And here, the betrayer delivered him over. Now, what is an Iscariot? What is an Iscariot? I'm just going to read an article here from the Anchor Bible Dictionary because I, I found it to be very uh, useful. There we go. One of the 12 disciples of Jesus, possibly from Judea, who served as treasurer of the itinerant group. His name always... And we'll learn that here in this chapter, by the way. When he gets sent... We didn't know this until now. Six hundred, three hundred and seventy-nine lessons or however long we've been doing this. And we've never known that he was the treasurer until this very night. And we learned that in John thirteen twenty-nine. When he says what you do, do quickly, and he leaves the room. And some, supposing that Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, "Buy the things we have need of," and and so forth. So, anyway, Judas Iscariot is uh, mentioned twenty times in the four Gospels, twice in Acts. Although he is designated as one of the twelve, um, he is not a central figure in the events portrayed. As far as the name goes, the name Judas Iscariot appears in five different forms. Judas is the Hellenized form of the Hebrew name Judah. So like, you know, the tribe, Jesus is from the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The Hebrew Judah is the same as the Greek Judas. Okay. Uh, so sometimes he's just called Judas. Sometimes he's called Judas Iscarioth. And uh, all the references there. That's a Semitic form of Iscariot. Sometimes he's called Judas Iscariot with the Greek form, not Semitized and uh, you got scripture references there. Uh, Judas, the one called Judas Iscariot. That's an interesting construction. Matthew 26:14. then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot. Satan entered into Judas who was called Iscariot. Interesting phrase. And um, John six seventy one, Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And that's the one we're looking at in our passage today. So, what is an Iscariot? <laughs> Mystery. Nobody knows. But there's a lot of guesses and a lot of opinions. The term Iscariot did not belong at first in the name itself, but emerged... To distinguish this Judas from many others, including the other disciple, Judas, not Iscariot. Man, I I feel bad for him, (laughs) right? How'd you like to be? Yeah, I'm Judas, not Iscariot. Judas, the other one. And he'll have all heaven, all eternity in heaven to clear that up. Um, Schwartz, which I haven't read because his his work is written in German. But uh, Schwartz lists nine interpretations of the term Iscariot and adds another of his own. So uh, there were nine that, that, that he was writing about. And then he added a tenth that he thought was more reasonable. And uh, and, also, and the text here spells out Schwartz's conclusions. Um, some hold that the term Iscariot indicates that Jews, Judas belonged to the group of the Sicarii. Now, if in fact this is true, then what it means is is that the term Iscariot, which is not a Greek term, uh, obviously it's, it's borrowing from some other language. Okay. Is it borrowing from Latin? Is it borrowing from Aramaic? Is it borrowing from Hebrew? Where is this term coming from? Well, if it comes from the Latin, then uh, it would class Judas along with the group of the Sakari. And the Sakari were uh, named because of the, the kind of dagger that they used. Uh, they were assassins. And they were dagger men. And, uh, and it would fit. They cooperated well with the zealots. Many of them were zealots. All right, many of the zealots were Sakari and so forth. And so since we have in the listing of the apostles, Simon the zealot and Judas the Iscariot, okay, we have a thought that, well, that's what was happening here. And so there are authors that will make that case, that he was one of the Sakari dagger-wielding assassins, and thus they concluded Judas was a member of the zealot party along with Simon. Now, others suggest that the term is derived from the Hebrew, but there's no universal agreement on which Hebrew or what term. But the Hebrew "sakhar," uh, which designates the false one. This uh, highlights the character of Judas by alluding to his surname, um, in his surname, to his act of deception and betrayal. If you want to read Tory or Gartner, you can follow up on those theories. Sakhar. And uh, that's one I was puzzling out myself a while back because one of the terms for um, Satan is Halel ben shachar. And uh, I'm trying to see if there's a connection there. Anyway, um, thirdly, others believe that the word uh, designates his deed, that he was a deliverer, another Hebrew root. And thus har paradidus, that is the the betrayer, the the, the one who accomplishes paradidomy, is actually a translation from Scariot. And uh, it's been noted that the Septuagint of Isaiah 19.4 translates the PL of Sakhar. So let's take a look at that. Isaiah 19.4. <clears throat> Moreover, I will deliver the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel master, and a mighty king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. And so the term here is Sakhar. Fifty-five thirty-four. If you want a Strong's number for that, Sakar. Fifty-five thirty-four. And so the thought is that maybe Iskariot is a transliteration or is a is a, a rendering of this uh, of this particular verb because he is the deliverer. He is the betrayer. So there's the theory on that. And in fact, the Septuagint uses paradigm there for that verb. All right. Um, And so Maureen, there's the the author there 1973 in his text, takes uh, Mark's designation to be a literal translation translation of uh, Iscariot, the one handing over. Still others suggest that it refers to what Judas did for a living, concluding that he was a red dyer or a fruit grower. Okay, so maybe. We don't know a whole lot about their occupations. We know Matthew was a tax collector. We know four of them were fishermen. So we know the occupation on five of the 12, but what did the other guys do? We have, there's no clue. No reference whatsoever. So, okay, speculation, but no way to know. Some believe that uh, the name Iscariot uh, indicates a hometown. So was Judas perhaps the only one of the 12 actually came from Judah, from that particular geography? Most of them were Galileans. Most of them were northerners from the Galilean region, as we understand it. Although, to be honest, we don't know. Their hometowns. We know they were fishermen. Uh, We know that uh, Peter and and, uh, Andrew came from, uh, we know their village, um, but we don't know the others. All right. Was Judas uh, from the village of Kerioth? Mentioned in Joshua 15.25. This is where they were describing boundaries after the conquest. Hazor Harada and uh, Kerioth Hezron. Okay, well, okay. Was he from Kerioth? Is that what Judas Iscariot means? And um, Billardbeck is the author that defends this. Some other authors there. Schwartz, the guy that cataloged all 11, ten of these and added his own for number 11, uh, proposes that the original Aramaic yields the translation, the man from the city. In other words, he was from Jerusalem. And uh, and then he supports it with evidence from the Targums and uh, different aspects there. So, if those who suggest that the term "ascariote" came into use only after Judas' death are correct, then it is also possible that not even the evangelist knew (laughs) what it meant. There's another theory, that John never even put the word in his gospel. That the term was actually added in later centuries. Okay? I don't think that's the case. The earliest manuscripts we have have the terms in it. And so that seems uh, implausible. Although it seems plausible to interpret a as designating a place of origin, there is no consensus on this or on the place designated. And so even worse than occupation, at least the people saying, well, it's probably his occupation. He was probably a red dyer." Well, all right nice guess, at least there we have five other disciples that we can say for a fact we know their occupation, four fishermen and a tax collector. So at least there we can say that. If you're saying that it's his hometown, it's even, we can respond likewise, okay, nice guess, but there we only know of two disciples where the hometown is stated in the, in the gospel record. So it, it really is, is, uh, is, is, a, is a puzzle. And uh, one for which um, we're not, I don't think anyone's going to prove totally until we get to heaven. All right. So my question for you today is, are you OK with that? <laughs> Can you be relaxed to say that we don't know what the name Iscariot means? All right. Or does that bother you? Right now, if all scriptures, God breed them profitable, I ought to be able to profit from something that's in the Bible but does that mean I have to know every nth, nth degree detail, all the nitty gritty of everything? I don't think it does. I think we can be content uh, that it is a it's it's a it's a wonderful name that identifies him as the traitor. We don't confuse him with the other Judas and we're OK. Iscariot's the traitor and whatever the origin of it, um, since it's not clear in Scripture, doesn't tell us what it means, then I'm going to be more relaxed about that. OK, any questions on any of that? Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Right. I imagine. Yeah, there were the the most common names were were Judas and uh, and uh, Simon, basically tribe names. Uh, so uh, you know, Peter was Simon Peter. So Simon was extraordinarily common. Um, John was common. Girl names, I mean, how many Marys do we have in the gospel records? So yeah, they were pretty, they were pretty, um, they didn't have a, a wide variety such as we might have today. That's, a, that's an excellent question. Um, and and it's not common to, to list their, where they're from unless it's so unusual that it causes them to stand out. You know, Uriah the Hittite. Okay, I get that. He was a Hittite, probably the only one among David's soldiers, David's mighty men. And so he... That label hung on him to identify him that way. But no, it was not common at all to identify ge- geographically with where you were from. Typically, it was more common to identify who your father was. Simon, son of John. Things of that, yeah. And in this case, Judas, son of, of uh, Simon, the, uh, the Iscariot. All right. Well, let's move on then and uh, let's look at foot washing. Point three, foot washing is an illustration of spiritual cleansing. Foot washing is an illustration of spiritual cleansing. And so what happens here when he girds himself and then he pours water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Okay? I had an awful lot of fun. It was neat studying this because last week I had a baby in the house and... and. Um, Quinley spent a lot of time in my office and and I had a towel (laughs) because that baby can slobber and drool and puke and all babies do. But anyway, so last week I kept a towel in my study while uh, getting ready to teach this here with a towel. And the only places in the Bible the word towel shows up is right here. And I had a towel in my study last week to prepare for this. All right. So he came to Simon Peter. And he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now, it's interesting. Between verse 5 and verse 6, how many disciples did he wash? (laughs) And did he do Peter last or did he do Peter first? It doesn't say. It just says that he began to wash the disciples' feet in verse 5, to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter, and, and it doesn't say. But would you believe that all the commentaries in the world will spend page after page after page speculating and debating that obviously Peter must have been the first that he went to because Peter's always first. Or that Peter must have been last because after um, the conversation in, in, that takes you down through verse 11, then he's done. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to y'all? All of y 'all, okay, so countless pages about whether Peter went first and Peter went last or whatever and what a what a waste of time. The point is there was cleansing that was happening, and this was an illustration of a truth, and we need to learn the truth. Peter needed to learn the truth, and when Peter was confused on the truth, then uh, it gets explained even more. So let's look at this. The term for katharos, for cleansing, I'll give you in a moment. It's one of the subpoints. points. Uh, but you'll notice in verses 10 and 11, it's used three different times. And uh, not only the term for washing, but the term for bathing. They're different terms. And then uh, what does it take to become clean? And uh, Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. Jesus wasn't there to give him a bath. He didn't bathe the apostles. He washed their feet. And that was to teach the principle. And he says, you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Judas was an unbeliever. All right. There were at least two different occasions or possibly three on this night that um, Jesus gives Judas the opportunity to come clean. (laughs) Sorry. Myself. Jesus gives Judas the opportunity to confess, to admit, to open up. He gives him the opportunity when he dips the, the, the bread with him. He gives him the opportunity here when he says not all of you are clean. All right. And when he says what you do, do quickly. I mean, Judas knows he's busted. And he goes out and he does it. All right. So, spiritual cleansing. Let's understand this. Now, This prophetic pantomime, I've used this term before. I don't know if I've ever put it on a slide before. But a lot of the prophets did this. Ezekiel did this several times when he laid on one side and laid on the other side. When he baked bread over dung, when he did a lot. A lot of the prophets would do pantomimes. They would do like uh, dramatic portrayals, like stage productions. Okay, This prophetic pantomime should not be confused with the hospitality-connected foot washing that we see elsewhere. This is not to be confused with a hospitality-connected foot washing. In John 7 and 1 Timothy 5, let's not confuse what's happening here. Are you familiar with these? John 7, 44 through 47. Because this is a ritual, this is a prophetic pantomime that is pointing ahead to something that will relate to the church age but not relate to them where they are. Luke 7, verses 44 through 47. Jesus is in a Pharisee's house, and the Pharisee didn't wash his feet when he came in. He's in a Pharisee's house here named Simon, and he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, Say it, teacher. Um, Let me get further down, verse 44. He said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but since uh, she, since the time she came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. So there's the contrast. Basically telling this Pharisee that he was totally insulting on the hospitality of having him into his home. And uh, contrasting that with this woman who was so appreciative and so responding in, in grace and love to what she had received in grace and love, that uh, that she couldn't uh, she couldn't help herself and she was responding appropriately. And this Pharisee, who was this you know know-it-all wise guy, Bible expert, prideful jerk, um, didn't couldn't even provide common hospitality courtesy. So that's something different than what's being taught to these disciples, presumably. Presumably, the, the, that man that prepared this house, that prepared this upper room, everything that was being furnished would have included such things as the foot washing when they came in downstairs to greet them, to welcome them, to take their sandals, which would have been left at that door, to wash their feet and they would have gone upstairs to the upper room. Okay? So Jesus is not washing their feet here because it hadn't been done yet. He's teaching them in a ritual. He's teaching them as a prophet pointing forward to things that had not yet been revealed. He even tells them this in verse 7. Look what it says in John 13, 7. What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. This is spiritual content that in the dispensation of Israel, Old Testament believers would not relate to. But church age believers will relate to. Okay? This, by the way, is one of our uh, textual bases on which we understand that 13 chapter 13 14 15 16 17 this whole segment of the gospel of john is looking forward to the church age and not related to the dispensation of israel okay we've got to be clear on that it bothers me so much that people want to put the church into the olivet discourse in matthew 24 and 25 when that's dealing with israel and then they fail to see that the church is here in John 13 through 17. You've got you to gotta outline your, your chapters appropriately. All right, not only is it there, but over in the church age in 1 Timothy 5.10. 1 Timothy 5.10, we see that it is still a component of hospitality. It is not a uh, ritual of the church. Somebody asked that last week. Uh, that because there are actual churches who do practice foot washing as an ordinance. Like baptism and communion. First Timothy 5.10, part of the identification of a widow uh, that would be eligible to, uh, to be vested in the office of widow and to be cared for by the local church. Uh, a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old. If she's younger than that, then she ought to remarry. Um, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works... If she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints feet, if she has assisted those in distress, if she has devoted herself to every good work. And we see that these are characteristics of, of godliness, of, a, of an older woman that, uh, that uh, is, is operating well within her, her Christian walk. But, the, but you notice how washing the saints feet is only one among a, a, a list of a lot of items there than any housewife would do any mother would do any grandmother would do right it's not uh, it's not set apart as some kind of a ecclesiastical ritual for a local church to participate in and and so i would include that along with luke 7 as hospitality connected foot washing what jesus is doing in the upper room is teaching bible class it is not to be confused with hospitality connected foot washing something different is happening here we want to understand that. He's illustrating the principle of humility, of course, but he's, he's teaching principles of cleansing. We've got to understand this. All right. Point B. An Old Testament believer cannot oida the foot-washing doctrine. But a New Testament believer will gnosko it. John 13:7. I translated the verbs there for you. John 13:7. An Old Testament believer cannot oida the foot-washing doctrine. It relates to church application. It relates to the principles connected with our confession of sin in 1 John one nine, How we're restored to fellowship. We've already had our bath. We were bathed at the moment we were made clean as new creatures in Christ. And so our operating uh, basis in the church age is through the confession of sin to be restored to fellowship to have our foot washing, metaphorically and spiritually speaking. And this relates to a reality in the church age that was not a feature of the Old Testament. Yes, they had confession, but not on the basis that we're talking about for the restoration to fellowship and the re-empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So the verbs in John thirteen seven are oida and ginosko. What I do, you do not oida now. What I do, you do not realize now. You do not have the knowledge by experience now. But you will know it, gnosko, hereafter. You will understand it hereafter. And the hereafter, as he describes the hereafter in this upper room discourse, the hereafter is with a risen Savior at the right hand of the Father and with the Holy Spirit sent to reveal all things, to teach all things, even the deep things of God. The hereafter that he talks about in the Upper Room Discourse is the coming church age, where you and I operate in the dispensation of the church. All right, vocabulary to wash is nipto, N-I-P-T-O. Washing is nipto, number 35, 38, if you want to do a word study on that. There are only 17 New Testament uses, so you should do pretty well. And uh, 13 of them are right here in the Gospel of John. 5 in John chapter 9 and 8 right here in John chapter 13. So uh, the, the, the bulk of the New Testament uses are right here. I think the, the other ones, uh, the other Gospels and so forth you're familiar with. But uh, John 5 is the man born blind. And the man born blind was told to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And he goes and he washes and then he has to tell the story a couple of times. And uh, so that's why you have five Repeated uses there in that chapter, in John chapter 9. And the eight repeated uses here about washing. So that's 13. There's only four times outside of this that it's, uh, that it's used. So that's nipto. And nipto is different than luo. L-O-U-O. Luo. To bathe. Okay? So washing feet. Washing is different than bathing. Terms are related. We understand Just differences in terms, I mean, in both activities, you're getting something clean. But, um, a distinction between washing and bathing. You don't need the total body bath once you're saved. That's a once and for all thing. Once and one time only. Luo, I should spell out for you, it's L-O-U-O. L-O-U-O, don't confuse it with the other Luo that everybody knows. LUO is a verb that first year Greek students get to uh to memorize all their uh, verb conjugations and paradigms and so forth. LUO means to loosen or to release, but this LUO, L O U uh, O, is uh, is to bathe and uh, goes all the way back to early classical Greek times. Five New Testament uses and these are worth looking at. John 13:10 is our first use, the use that we have here or see Peter realizes that he he messed up. And this is classic Peter. <laughs> Peter, he, he he opens his mouth and he just starts talking, usually before he's really thought about what he's going to say. <laughs> you know anybody like that? Okay. And that gets you in trouble, oftentimes. And so he comes to Simon Peter, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus uh, answered and said to him, What I do, you do not understand, you will. And Peter said, Never, never. You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, Well... If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Man. So Peter realizes he's messed up. Okay. Same thing on the Mount of Transfiguration. There's the Lord with with Moses and, and Elijah. And Peter starts running up and, oh, Lord, Lord, it's great that we're here. I'm going to build three tabernacles. I'm going to do this. And then the voice out of heaven says, Peter, quiet. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Okay. Same thing here. Peter just starts talking and he realizes, man, I said the wrong thing. (laughs) and so now he's going to go overboard the other direction. Oops, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, you can wash my feet. In fact, wash everything. Uh, You can wash not only my feet, but my hands and my head. And he's just digging the hole worse, right? I mean, at some point, you're just making matters worse. So just shut up, Peter. Listen, learn something. And Jesus said to him, He who has bathed, that's the second verb here. That's the luo. He who is bathed needs only to nipto. Needs only to nipto his feet, but he is completely clean. And you are clean, katharos. but not all of you. And not all of you disciples. Okay. For he knew the one who is betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you. Are clean. So there's our use there of luo. It'll come back again in Acts 9 and Acts 16, Hebrews 10 and 2 Peter 2. And we realize that this cleansing, this bathing is, is uh, remarkable as it relates to our salvation, as it relates to what happens when um, we are washed clean. So uh, let's look at Acts 9. sticky pages this morning there we go Uh, this is where uh tabitha falls sick and dies translated in the greek dorcas i suspect she went by tabitha I'm, i'm just saying and this woman was abounding with deeds of kindness, charity, continually did. And it happened at the time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, bathed her body, they laid it in an upper room. They didn't just wash her feet, but they gave uh, the the corpse, the cadaver here, the uh, complete uh, bathing. Lady, uh, laid it in the upper room. All right. And then of course she doesn't stay dead. This is one of the apostolic resuscitations. Over to chapter 16 and verse 33. Um, takes uh, Peter and uh, or takes Paul and Silas out of the jail cell. This is the Philippian jailer, and he took them that very night, uh, that very hour of the night, and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. That he bathed their wounds, and uh, I think by virtue of being beaten the way they were from head to toe, <laughs> in all likelihood, this was a complete bathing that uh, Paul and Silas required. When he uh, released them out of jail. But then as it relates to us. Hebrews 10.22. Hebrews 10.22. And the reason why this is important. That we understand the reality of this ritual. Is because this enables us to participate in our priesthood. What Jesus is giving the disciples on this, upper, on this night in which he's betrayed in the upper room, what he's giving is the, the pattern for them to follow in recognition of what's needed for us in the church age in our priesthood. All right. The parallel for this in the Old Testament was the instructions Moses gave for Aaron and his sons, what they had to do in their priesthood and they had to com- be completely bathed before they could be clothed and dressed as priests as the tabernacle was completed as they began their Levitical priesthood but after that did they have to go through that full body bath ever again or why did they have the laver there at the at the front gate there at the tabernacle what was the laver for the laver was for the foot washing all right and they could go in and do their go in and do their priestly service well We have our reality, and this is our reality. The Lord introduced it in John 13. The author of Hebrews makes this clear. So Hebrews 10 says, uh, verse 19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh. So it's not the blood of a goat, and it's not the earthly tabernacle in view, It's the reality, the blood of Christ, what he achieved for us in his death. He himself being the veil. Now that's rent. All right. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. All of us can come in. Isn't that awesome? In the Old Testament, it was only the high priest all by himself. One day a year going into the Holy Holies. Everybody else was outside. Even the other priests were outside. But we get to go within. And we're invited to draw, to draw nigh. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed. Here's the luo. Washed with pure water. When did that happen? Okay. Spiritually, that was at the moment of your salvation. By being a believer priest in the church age, you are entitled to this. You're entitled to this. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Man, since he's done all this for us, it's kind of pathetic that we would just lose heart and give up on it, right? No, hold fast because he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. This is why we have to be a priesthood. This is why we're all in that Holy of Holies. This is why we all come alongside when one struggles, we all struggle. When one weeps, we all weep. We pray with one another. We love one another. All right. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Poking with a sharp stick. All right. Not forsaking our own assembling together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And that's why we're here. So we assemble together, we receive instruction, we stimulate one another, we um, encourage one another to not lose heart, to hold fast our confession. We remind one another that he who promised is faithful. You know, if your sister's given up on something, just remind her. The one who promised is faithful. If your brother's given up on something, remind him. He who promised is faithful. 2 Peter 2.22 is the last use on this. Um, It happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returning to its own vomit and a sow after washing, after lua, after its bath, returns to wallowing in the mire. All right, so in all of these, we understand that there's a difference between simply washing and bathing. Both will get you clean, but both have to be separated in their understanding. The word for clean is katharos. Katharos. We'll have to save this for next week. Katharos, K-A-T-H-A-R-O-S. And um, we'll save that for next week. Understand that 11 disciples had bathed. 11 disciples were clean. One was still an unbeliever. And he's going to die an unbeliever. He's going to go out and hang himself the next day. The cleansing needs are for a believer are different than the cleansing needs for an unbeliever. He who has bathed doesn't need to be bathed again. In fact, you can't be bathed again. He who has bathed does not need to be bathed. He who has bathed needs only to nip dough. Once you've luoed, you don't need that ever again. You just need to nip dough and you're back in fellowship. Okay? You don't have to get saved again. You've got to be experientially cleansed. You've got to confess your sins be back in fellowship. The cleansing needs for a believer are different than the cleansing needs for an unbeliever. And so also next week, we'll take a look at uh, Psalm 51 with David's confessions. And we'll take a look at 1 John 1 and we'll see the distinctions in uh, in what happens there. Okay. All right. Well, this uh, gets us to the top of the hour. Uh, Should I taunt you with a couple of things? Do you have enough to think about related to Judas Iscariot? He and uh, Antichrist are the only two that are called. What are they called? Son of perdition. Son of perdition. Terms only used twice. It's used once of uh, Judas Iscariot. It's used once of Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And then in Acts chapter 1, we got a bizarre reference to Judas. And it says um, when they're praying about who's going to replace him. And they prayed and they said, Oh, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen. They put forth Joseph called Barsabbas, and they put forth uh, who was also called Justice and Matthias. Matthias is the one that gets picked. But they put these two forth and they say, Lord, show which one you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Where was Judas's place? all right you got seven days to think about thank you father for your truth your word is truth thank you for our the faithfulness of our savior who knew the betrayer he knew the 11 believers and the one traitor he washed his feet father the humility expressed here is just amazing and i pray that we would learn the lessons father not to Not to replicate a a ritual without reality, but to operate in the reality of humility one towards another. Serving one another, Father. It's not the one who reclines at the table that's the greatest. Jesus said, I have come to serve. And I pray that we would understand this. And I thank You in Christ's name. Amen.